This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. Believe that there's no demons and no demonic warfare. You're going to fly in the face of all the warnings that are given us in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the letters to the churches, and in the book of Revelation. To believe that there's neither demons nor demonic warfare, again, it's going to cause us to be unprepared and very, very vulnerable in that guerrilla-type attack that the enemy has against our souls. We all know people believe in different things when it comes to spiritual warfare. We know that there are those who don't believe that there is any going on. The demons aren't real or around us. Then there is the other side of the spectrum where someone believes there are demons in every bad thing that happens. Pastor David shows us illustrations throughout the Bible of spiritual warfare today. He shows that they are very real, and yet the battle belongs to the Lord. He is in it, and He will give us victory. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, for part one of our message entitled, Man Your Battle Stations. Whenever a ship at sea hears the words, whether it be peacetime or at war, general quarters, man your battle stations, then suddenly that cry increases the heartbeat of every sailor on that ship. As a matter of fact, when that cry comes out, uh, you can take a sailor who is deep and sleep to a full-blown adrenaline flow in about .03 seconds because they know what that sound means. Every sailor has been taught what that sound means. He's been trained to recognize it. And in today's ships, it's a long and incessant gonging going on, and then it's followed through the PA system. General quarters, general quarters, all hands, man your battle stations. It's at that point that uh, the seaman drops everything that he's doing. He stows away everything that is not necessary for the battle. And as he runs to his battle station, he's putting on his gear, his uh, again, uh, for his combat gear, in order to cover himself, protect himself, as he goes to this imminent encounter with the enemy. It's a drill that's practiced over, over and over on a ship. That is, if their crew and the ship want to survive any kind of an attack from the enemy. And every drill has to be practiced, has to be played out as if it's a live action event. In a time of war, the drill definitely takes on a new fervor, a new intensity. When you know that the enemy is out there, he's looking for you, and that at any moment, at any place, day or night, wherever it might be, the enemy may come upon you. When you know the enemy is out there looking, he's looking for an opportunity to be able to destroy you or your shipmates, then even the drills take on a new life. Beloved, we're at war. Whether you understand that or not, you yourself may or may not be in the heat of a battle this morning, but I guarantee you many of your fellow shipmates are in the very midst of it right now, and they're being attacked mercilessly. There's already casualties. There's already those who have been wounded and and damaged. You may or may not be among the wounded this morning, but trust me, This isn't a drill. This battle is real, and the battle is a heated one. 
Some aspects of the battle are being fought with eternity in the balance. The salvation of individuals actually on the very line, whether they'll come to Christ or not, whether because of the events that are going on it will turn them from faith in Christ or not. There's other battles that are seeking to to wound or to make ineffective those that are caught up in the crosshairs of the enemy's attack. Another thing about our battle, the enemy doesn't show up on a normal radar screen, by the way. Uh, Most of the time he comes at us in kind of a stealth mode. Sometimes he even uses friendly fire to hurt or destroy individuals or even churches. He's an enemy that can't be clearly or plainly seen, but he is just as real nonetheless. As we begin our look at this closing section of Ephesians, we're going to find that the main focus of this section is actually down in verse 12. So, though we're not quite in verse 12 yet, I want to begin in verse 12 this morning. So, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Then Paul surrounds this verse both before it and after it with these declarations of warfare, this need to have on our protective armor. We need to have offensive weaponry. And it's very clear directive for all of us to man our battle stations. To Paul, this battle was both real and, and personal. It was supernatural, and it affected both the, the flesh and the spirit. The way that Paul spoke about this battle, it was just a given that the battle was real and that it was ongoing. He didn't try to explain it. He didn't try to persuade his his readers to agree with him that there was a spiritual battle because they knew at that point in time, because they were very involved in that battle themselves. He simply declared that it is, and it was real in Paul's day, and beloved, it is real in our day today. Some of you this morning, I know you're in the midst of it. When we're speaking about this battle, It's a spiritual battle, and it's also demonic warfare. The unfortunate place that a lot of believers find themselves falls into one of two categories. One, there's there's a lot of believers today that believe this is just a never-ending drill. They really don't believe that there are really demons, but it's just a way that uh, Bible teachers speak about, uh, you know, troubles and trials that come into their lives. They don't believe that there's demons. They don't believe in demonic warfare. They really don't comprehend the reality of this battle that they're in. On the other hand, there are believers that today, again, believe that there's a demon behind every rock and and every uh, ailment that comes. If you stand in either camp, you'll unfortunately find yourself in one of two positions. Either you're going to be continually prone to real spiritual attacks, and yet you're going to be ineffective in guarding or combating against those attacks because you don't know it's a spiritual attack. Or you're going to be looking for the enemy in all the wrong places. Declaring, kind of like that comedian from years ago, Flip Wilson used to say, it was what? The devil made me do it. Not understanding that there's a great responsibility that you and I have as a believer to make the right choices in our life and to follow the right path in our walk with the Lord. 
To believe that there was no demons and no demonic warfare goes against all that we see in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Believe that there's no demons and no demonic warfare, you're going to fly in the face of all the warnings that are given us in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the letters to the churches, and in the book of Revelation. To believe that there's neither demons nor demonic warfare, again, it's going to cause us to be unprepared and very, very vulnerable in that guerrilla-type attack that the enemy has against our souls. There's many Christians that give lip service to demons or demonic warfare, but they live their lives in practical disbelief. They don't guard their lives against those kinds of attacks. They don't give credence to the effects and the results of those attacks as being demonic. And so rather than spiritually preparing and protecting themselves against the attacks, they try to fight and they try to defend themselves in the flesh. And they're always looking for a fleshly or a logical way to deal with the situation that they're in. On the other side of the camp are those believers who feel that there's demonic warfare that's mixed up in every aspect of their lives. Every sniffle is demonically influenced. Demons caused the car battery to go dead, even though they were the ones that left the lights on all night. It's, it's, it's a demon that's causing all of these struggles within my marriage, but... Both of the partners, neither one of them has grace, neither one of them is walking in forgiveness, and they're both filled with selfishness. I've even heard one dear brother pray to cast out the demon of stage fright. The list goes on and on. In both of these cases, the believer is is, is vulnerable to an attack where they could be rendered ineffective in their own lives, ineffective in their walk, ineffective in their witness, and ineffective in their work within the kingdom of God. So somewhere in the middle of denial and overacting, somewhere in the middle of those two is the truth that you and I need to understand and that we need to be walking in in this whole thing of spiritual warfare and actual demonic activity that's still in the world today. There are demons. There is demonic warfare and however you and I we ourselves have a great responsibility in our own lives for the decisions and for the actions and for the attitudes that we make and that we hold on to I can't blame it on a demon if I'm walking in unforgiveness I can't blame it on spiritual warfare if I have attitudes of selfishness within my own life. That's sin in my own life I need to deal with. It's also in in the light of our own personal responsibility as believers that Paul brings in this closing argument here. But I want to take a moment and I want you to go with me one more time back through a little portions of Ephesians to again show that he's already laid out the personal responsibility that we have before he moves into this area of the spiritual battle because he knows that there is a personal responsibility that every believer has in the midst of all of this. If you're in Ephesians, just look back with me quickly, back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. He says, therefore, walk worthy. 
you and I, walking worthy of the call with which we are called. And he goes on to speak about that on through that chapter, down in verse 17 of chapter 4. Again, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. In other words, he's saying, don't walk and don't choose and don't be led in the way that you used to be led before you were in Christ. Don't go that way anymore. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, and offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He says, you and I, we need to walk in love. Our lives need to be an imitation of God in this area of love, this area of forgiveness, this area of concern for other people, and every aspect that that brings into it. Still in chapter 5, down in verse 7 and 8, he says, Therefore, don't be partakers with them. And he speaks about those sons of disobedience. Don't be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. He tells us, therefore, don't walk in the darkness anymore. Don't do those things. Don't make those choices. Don't allow those attitudes to continue to to, uh, be fertilized within your mind and to grow there. He says that's the way you used to be. You're not that way anymore. Now you are a child of the light, so walk as a child of the light. And still in chapter 5, down in verses 14 through 17, he says, therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, in other words, with a clear direction and with a purpose in mind. He says, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk diligently. Walk with forethought. Walk in a way that seeks to understand the will of God in your life. That's your responsibility as a believer. I can't simply say, well, Lord, you you know, if you want me to be that way, then you need to change my attitude. No, you need to change your attitude. He has placed within you His Holy Spirit in order to begin that work in you. But you and I, we have a great responsibility for the choices that we make or that we don't make. All of these, our own personal responsibilities, in light of the situation here, Paul has declared, therefore, in light of what he had already previously written, walk. Speaking about that type of life that we need to choose to live. So now we come to the close of this letter. Paul brings to conclusion, again, our our position and the attitude of the believer. our, Our battle stations, if you will. In Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, we read these words. He says, finally, my brethren. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Paul wraps up this letter 
wraps it up with this encouragement. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. It's got to be the Lord's strength working in you. It's got to be the Lord's power working in you. Are there decisions that you need to make? Absolutely. Are there determinations that you need to make? Certainly there are. But it's not by your strength that you're going to be able to fulfill them. It's not by your power that you're going to be able to see the success. Paul was intimately aware of these spiritual, these supernatural, this this cosmic battle that goes on. Not only against him, but against believers everywhere. And so he warns them that their strength has to be in the Lord. Their power must come from the Lord. Every generation has to learn this same lesson all over again. It's not by my might. It's not by my power. But it's by His Spirit. And we need to understand that. Balancing out the responsibility of our actions, but also the inworking work of God in that spiritual growth. King David, he was a veteran warrior long before he became king of Israel. We read where he acknowledges that the source of his strength, it comes from the Lord. We read it all throughout Psalms as he declares these things. Here's a man, again, that's speaking by experience. He's speaking about the reality of his own faith as he writes in the book of Psalms, chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. He says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. Then David, among all men, knew the responsibility of actions and he knew the reality of consequences of the wrong actions. But David knew where his strength came from. Unless you know the situation that David was in when he penned those words there in Psalm 18, they, they may or may not move you as what he's speaking about, the Lord being his fortress, his deliverer, his strength, and his trust. You see, at this point in time, David was on the run from Saul, his father-in-law, who had sought to kill him multiple times already, and now he was chasing him all throughout Israel. So let me ask you, how's the relationship with your in-laws doing? David was under a real threat of, of real death. His enemy on the flesh was Saul. The, the weaponry of Saul was that spear that he had already thrown at David. But there was also a spiritual battle that was going on too. And David knew that in the midst of that physical battle, there was a much greater spiritual battle that was taking place. Later on, when David became the king, he still had troubles. He still had attacks from the enemy, even from his own family. But when his enemies pursued him, that's when David would write these words like we find in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Because David's trust, his hope, his assurance was in the Lord. Generations later, Habakkuk, a prophet of the Old Testament, he understood that in the midst of the battle, the only way he was going to be able to stand was to stand in the strength of the Lord. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19, we read that the Lord God is my strength, and he's made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me to walk in my high places. Hinds feet. That's the, uh, a hind is a, like a mountain deer, and those mountain deer, they were 
literally through experience, through birth, they were designed, they were purposed to be able to walk in those steep mountain slopes there around Israel. And when he says, the Lord has made my feet like those hinds feet, like those deer feet that are able to stand on unfirm ground, but still be able to stand firm in the midst of that. That's what he speaks about, about God being his strength. And he allows me to walk in these high places. So now the same thought, the same kind of an idea, Paul here in Ephesians Paul, a man that's experienced with a full life of spiritual battles and physical attacks at the same time. He's warning you and I and the church of Ephesus to remain focused, not in our own abilities, not in our own strength, but on the Lord's strength and on the Lord's power. He says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's the way he encourages them to be able to do that is to put on all of their battle gear. You're not going to be able to fight this battle unless you have your combat gear on. And he tells them there in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do you think that Paul is just writing poetically here? No. He's writing in reality here. He says there is a spiritual force that is out and about that is working against us. And Paul is trying to make that perfectly clear to the believers as he's writing. That's why he says in 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. In other words, having done all, to be able to man your battle stations. When we recall again the story of David, remember as he stood before Goliath, that Philistine giant, we're reminded that the, the, the world's logic is to be armed with the world's armor. But in spiritual battles, that just doesn't work that way. Saul was absolutely right during that time, when he said to David that David was physically incapable to be able to go up against such a fierce warrior as Goliath. After all, Goliath was an experienced warrior, over nine feet tall, just a huge giant of a man. David, in the descriptions that we have of him, was again a smaller, ruddy looking. He was a young shepherd boy, not experienced in this type of warfare. Saul, always looking for the physical answer, always thinking in the physical realm. He tried to assist David by physical means. He tried to give his own armor to David to be able to wear in the midst of the battle. And I'm kind of curious on that. If that armor didn't help Saul in the battle, why did he think that it would help David in the battle? Saul didn't realize David was already armed. He was already covered by the armor of God in his life. It wasn't an armor that was made of steel or, or bronze or, or chain mail. David was wearing the armor 
of God. And so as David went up against Goliath, armed only with his slingshot, and yet he's covered with the armor of God, there was this boldness, there was this faith in his life that none of those other Israelite warriors had in their lives. Remember, for a while now, for a season now, Goliath had been going out to the valley and crying up on the hillsides where the army of Israel is, come on, bring on your best guy. I'll take him on. Just, just bring him on. And not an Israelite would move until finally Saul was saying, hey, if somebody will do this, uh, we'll give them a lot of money. As a matter of fact, we'll give them a lot of money. They don't have to pay taxes anymore, and they can have my daughter for their bride. And still nobody went out. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. Pastor David will continue verse by verse through the book of Ephesians next time. Now, we want to encourage you to become a Facebook friend with us. Log on to TheOpenWord.com and follow the link to The Open Word Facebook page. To stay current with what's being broadcasted here on The Open Word, subscribe to our Twitter feed at The Open Word Radio. You can subscribe to The Open Word Podcast at TheOpenWord.com or search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. The Open Word Podcast is always available and completely free. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to the Open Word Podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to TheOpenWord.com and subscribe to the Open Word Podcast. And to become our Facebook friend, follow the Open Word Twitter feed, or to access the archive of messages, log on to TheOpenWord.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We invite you to join us again for the next study of Pastor David's teaching through the book of Ephesians. That's next time on The Open Word.